Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and we have a rather large episode for you today as we dive into one of our favorite statutes. No, it's not the DMCA. No, it's not COPPA. No, it's the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, CDA 230, which has come under fire for the past couple of months and is really going to be experiencing one of its most important eras uh, in the next few hours. And if you aren't familiar with what's going on, if you haven't been following this, the president yesterday said that he was going to issue an executive order to talk about regulating social media platforms. Uh, And I've pulled up a tweet here that is from Jacob Ward that links a leaked version of the draft of this executive order. And we're going to be talking about that draft today. Unfortunately, we don't have a copy of the formal executive order that is intended to be signed later today. Uh, But I think this conversation is important enough that we can reflect on what the White House wants to do as of this draft document. And if something changes substantively in that document, I will add a pinned comment to this video that talks about what changes have happened. So you won't want to check out that pinned comment if anything happens in the interim to the actual final version of this executive order. But I thought this story was important enough that I wanted to get out there and talk to you about what the president is proposing because it is substantial. Now, if you aren't familiar with how executive orders work, ostensibly, they can't change the law, right? Congress passes laws, they legislate, they establish what the rules of our society are, The president signs those laws and then has agencies that help execute those laws across the country. As the executive, he is then further allowed to make certain claims, give certain directives about how his agencies, the executive branch, are to execute those laws. So when we talk about executive orders, they usually rely on reinterpretations or quote unquote clarifications, which are often new assertions of what the law says and how the president or another executive like a governor wants the law to be read by the agencies under their purview. And that's what is going to happen today, but it's not exactly what I thought they would do. So I thought it was important to discuss. Now, if you aren't familiar with the underlying controversy, it all relates to some tweets that the president made a couple of days ago. He said, there is no way that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent. Mailboxes will be robbed, ballots will be forged, and even illegally printed out and fraudulently signed, etc., etc. This will be a rigged election. No way. And then Twitter did something very unusual for them. They added this link right here that said, get the facts about mail-in ballots. This is an editorial comment added to a user's tweet that leads them to this page. Trump makes unsubstantiated claim that mail-in ballots will lead to voter fraud. Now, that appears to be written by Twitter. So this is a Twitter statement. This is their own editorial comment. And they continue on and say, On Tuesday, President Trump made a series of claims about potential voter fraud after California Governor Gavin Newsom announced an effort to expand mail-in voting in California during the COVID-19 pandemic. These claims are unsubstantiated. According to CNN, Washington Post, and others, experts say mail-in ballots are very rarely linked to voter fraud. Now, if you go and you look at all of these various things that they've chosen to highlight, that is indeed what these articles say. And in general, they are replying to notions about what fraud was in the past, right? And I don't want to get into the truthfulness or accuracy or inaccuracy of the president's statements here, 
or Twitter statements because it's not really about the politics that is going to be so concerning to those of you that follow CDA 230 or are regularly in virtual legality. But it is part of the story here because what Twitter wound up put up, putting up is a notion of falsity in what the president had to say. So while they only say get the facts, everything that they've put up here suggests that they believe what the president said is false. And that's important. That's what wound up making the president upset and why he pledged to sign an executive order. Twitter safety then came on and explained why they added these labels. They said, we added a label to two real Donald Trump tweets after California's vote by mail plans as part of our efforts to enforce our civic integrity policy. We believe those tweets could confuse voters about what they need to do to receive a ballot and participate in the election process. Now, straight up, that's balderdash, right? There's nothing about what the process to get a ballot is that is put forth in the president's tweets here. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to put themselves in this bucket of misleading information about how to participate when they're talking about what a violation of their civic policy is. You can't share false or misleading information about how to participate in an election or other civic process. Whatever you think about what the president tweeted out, that's not what he's doing here. And and Twitter knows it. So they also have this second tweet. They say, we also wanted to provide additional context and conversation with regard to voter fraud and mail-in ballots. We have a range of remediations. And in some cases, we add labels that link to more context. Okay, so what you're really saying is that he is sharing misleading or false information intended to intimidate or dissuade people from participating in an election or other civic process, right? We're talking about procedures or techniques, which could dissuade people. Hey, if I go out there and I say everything is fraudulent, maybe you'll be less likely to vote at all. So you are saying that you're talking about participation, but you really are talking about voter suppression. And that is clear as you go through what this says anyway. Right, you've pulled out a random tweet that says Trump says mail-in voting system in California will be substantially fraudulent, raising more questions about whether this is a voter suppression effort. Twitter, you are picking out what goes in here. And so you do have a certain editorial authority with what you are linking to. And I think that's one of the things that has raised the ire of, yes, the president, but also others that look at this process and say, You've got a generalized immunity from liability in CDA 230, but not for the content that you create. And does this cross that line? And I think reasonable minds can differ on that. But just by virtue of what you pulled out, I think you've got potential issues. Furthermore, when we talk about what is happening here, we also note that the remediations that you say exist on this don't actually exist. What you actually say will happen when you quote unquote violate this policy is the first time you violate it, we will require you to remove this content. Well, that didn't happen. You can modify your profile or you can suspend the account permanently. Now you do reserve the right to take other actions. The actions we take may include the following, but certainly what you've listed in respect of this actual policy is not what you did. Now, the Associated Press had some theories about exactly what they were doing here. And in this paragraph, I think they articulated exactly what's happening. Last month, Twitter began a get the facts label to direct social media users to news articles from trusted outlets next to tweets containing misleading or disputed information about the virus, the coronavirus. Company leaders said the new labels could be applied to anyone on Twitter and they were considering using them on other topics. Twitter has said it will decide internally when to use a label and on which tweets and will draw from information curated from news outlets. 
So a very similar concept to what we've talked about in this space with respect to YouTube and their highlighting of quote unquote authoritative sources based on essentially the fact that they are run by news organizations or outlets. And we do see that reflected in what Twitter chose to highlight mostly. Mostly it's blue check mark folks that work at media organizations. Mostly it's the media organizations themselves. But then you continue to go down here and it starts to really get confused, right? You've got Ronna McDaniel, who is the chairwoman of the GOP, the Republican Party, saying his radical plan is a recipe for disaster that would create more opportunities for fraud. You don't see a flag here. And instead it's included in the linked material about unsubstantiated claims. So I'm not clear as to what purpose that kind of commentary is trying to serve. And then you've got other tweets from folks that say things like a record number of mail-in ballots brought victory to several candidates who have voiced opposition to President Trump, which may well be the case, but you start to paint a picture with your editorializing if you're Twitter. So it's understandable why somebody would get upset at this. Maybe you think the president is lying completely. Maybe you don't think he's lying at all. The point is that Twitter has stepped into the fracas in a way that they haven't done before. And the president yesterday pledged to sign an executive order to have them answer for what they have done, essentially. And so a number of people came into my spaces, uh, including my parents and family, people in DMs, comments to my videos and said, well, Rick, what do you think the executive order could possibly be? And again, on the precept that you can't actually change the law, you can only change interpretations of the law, here was my best guess as of yesterday night as to what this would look like. So since a number of people have asked me, let's go through the thought experiment together. You were White House counsel. The president is upset at Twitter, putting a link in his tweet about getting facts and wants an executive order to regulate them. What do you write? Now, this is a thought experiment. The legal question is what could you write? presuming you had no specific objection to the concept and wanted to keep your job and actually do something. EOs can't change the law after all. The first step is to identify what you target. The most likely answer to that is CDA 230. It's been a boogeyman for politicians of various stripes for a while now, and many want to limit its applicability. So what does CDA 230 actually do here? Primarily, it does the following. Section C1. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So legal easy, right? We need to break that down. But here is where the much vaunted platform publisher internet lawyering comes into play. In short, paraphrasing that section for clarity, it says no provider of a simple platform like a Twitter will be treated as having published the content provided by one of its users. So if Joe Blow writes something defamatory about Jane Blow on Twitter, Twitter can't be dragged into the lawsuit simply for facilitating the communication of the defamation. But where things really confuse folks is in the definitions. Sure, Twitter is a provider of an interactive computer service under that section, but that doesn't mean it can't also be an information content provider. As said in section 230 F3, The term information content provider means any person or entity that is responsible in whole or in part for the creation or development of information provided through the internet or any other interactive computer service. After all, when the Twitter account tweets something, they don't get a shield from defamation simply because they also own the platform. If they defamed Jane Blow in their own tweet, they would still be liable. So the key is in that 
another. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. You are always responsible for your own content. So here is my thesis. If you are White House counsel, the best possibility to say anything in an executive order would seem to be to make clear, i.e. newly assert, that when the provider of an interactive computer service adds an editorial link to a user's content, they will be deemed to be the information content provider, not just of their comment, but of everything they included or otherwise highlighted within that linked page. So that Twitter would take on liability, whatever that may be, for anything that they decided to highlight. That this becomes a part of Twitter's language. They are performing an editorial function. And I do think that that rests at least somewhat in the way that the CDA Section 230 definitions work anyway. That is to say, the executive order would highlight that with respect to an editorial link, the platform will be deemed, quote unquote, as responsible in part for the development of information as necessary for that definition, such that the platform would be liable as if it had written the linked material itself. Now, one could argue that that is pretty close to the case as it stands, but it would likely deter platforms from engaging in the fight. And then again, I said, I'm not advocating for whether that's right or wrong. We're just trying to posit what the White House might or might not do. Now, some of what they wound up doing as put forth in this draft does reflect what I suggested that they might do last night, but a lot of it doesn't. So I do think it's important if you use the internet in general, if you love YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, wherever it is that you might find yourself, to really dive deep and to understand what the president is proposing, at least in this draft form, as it stands right now. Now, this is going to be a little bit of reading, but I do think it's important, and we're going to skip over some of the extra kind of politicization here, but not all of it. By the authority vested in me as president by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, including the Federal Property and Administrative Services Act of 1949 as amended, it is hereby ordered as follows. Section 1, policy. So this is going to be essentially not legally operative. This is all of the extra politics, the reason why this exists, that are put forth at the front of most executive orders. Free speech is the bedrock of American democracy. Our founding fathers protected this sacred right with the First Amendment to the Constitution, underscoring that the freedom to express and debate ideas is the foundation for all of our rights as a free people. The emergence and growth of online platforms in recent years raises important questions about applying the ideals of the First Amendment to modern communications technology. Today, many Americans follow the news, stay in touch with friends and family, and share their views on current events through social media and other online platforms. As a result, these platforms function in many ways as a 21st century equivalent of the public square. Now that's important because public square laws are distinct from laws that just relate to private property. You have a number of court cases that talk about whether or not you can distribute things like flyers in a privately owned shopping mall, where that takes the form of a public square in various cases, especially in the 1980s. And what this is trying to suggest in this paragraph is Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and the like have become a kind of public square. As president, I have made clear my commitment to free and open debate on the internet. Such debate is just as important online as it is in our universities, our businesses, our newspapers, and our homes. It is essential to sustaining our democracy. 
In a country that has long cherished the freedom of expression, we cannot allow a limited number of online platforms to handpick the speech that Americans may access and convey online. This practice is fundamentally un-American and anti-democratic. When large, powerful social media companies censor opinions with which they disagree, they exercise a dangerous power. Online platforms, however, are engaging in selective censorship that is hurting our national discourse. Tens of thousands of Americans have reported, among other troubling behaviors, online platforms flagging content as inappropriate, even though it does not violate any stated terms of service, making unannounced and unexplained changes to policies that have the effect of disfavoring certain viewpoints, and deleting content and entire accounts with no warning, no rationale, and no recourse. At the same time, social media platforms are invoking inconsistent, irrational, and groundless justifications to censor or otherwise punish American speech here at home. Several online platforms are profiting from and promoting the aggression and disinformation spread by foreign governments like China. And this paragraph continues to talk about how bad China and the China Chinese Communist Party is. My commitment to free and open debate on the internet remains as strong as ever. Therefore, it remains the policy of the United States that lawful content should be free from censorship in our digital marketplace of ideas. As a nation, we must foster and protect diverse viewpoints in today's digital communications environment where all Americans can and should have a voice. So, broadly speaking, the president frames all of this, which is going to be a limitant on Section 230, as being in favor of the First Amendment. Now, interestingly, if you actually go and you look at Section 230, the findings here are that this section exists to do the same thing that the president just said that he would be doing with that draft executive order. Congress finds that the rapidly developing array of internet and other interactive computer services available to individual Americans represent an extraordinary advance in the availability of educational and informational resources to our citizens. These services offer users a great degree of control over the information that they receive, as well as the potential for even greater control in the future as technology develops. The internet and other interactive computer services offer a forum for a true diversity of political discourse, unique opportunities for cultural development, and a myriad of avenues for intellectual activity. The internet and other interactive computer services have flourished to the benefit of all Americans with a minimum of government regulation. Increasingly, Americans are relying on interactive media for a variety of political, educational, cultural, and entertainment services. So it is the policy of the United States to promote the continued development of the internet and other interactive computer services to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the internet and other interactive computer services, unfettered by federal or state regulation. It's the policy of the United States that in the statute itself to encourage the development of technologies which maximize user control over what information is received to remove disincentives for the development and utilization of blocking and filtering technologies that empower parents to restrict children's access and to ensure vigorous enforcement of federal criminal laws to deter and punish trafficking and obscenity, stalking, and harassment by means of computer. So CDA 230 was already set up to try to protect First Amendment rights, to have a flourishing internet with a myriad of different ideas. And in fact, I think it's done that for the most part. I've talked about the DMCA in the past, but I think the DMCA and CDA 230, while having their problems and almost certainly need to be tweaked, their older laws in our modern digital age are still useful. We want to have these platforms have certain shields because we want to have users be allowed to talk to each other and not have the platforms be worried about being sued about what those users say. So what does the president actually suggest here that he wants to do 
to change CDA 230, or more specifically, to change the interpretation of CDA 230. It is the policy of the United States to foster clear, non-discriminatory ground rules promoting free and open debate on the internet. Prominent among those rules is the immunity from liability created by Section 230C of the Communications Decency Act. It is the policy of the United States that the scope of that immunity should be, quote-unquote, clarified. So he's doing what I had suggested that he would do, but he's going to be doing it in a different way than I suggested. So let's go to Section 230, the main bulk of what we're talking about. This is Section C. This is what this does. And this is what I was talking about in my Twitter thread. No provider or user of an interactive computer service, Twitter, shall not be treated as the publisher of any information provided by Joe Blow. Further, Twitter shall not be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that Twitter considers to be all of these things, obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, it's a lot of ways to say dirty, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected, right? We have constitutional rights to say things in the United States, but Twitter will not have civil liability for any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to material that it finds objectionable. That's in the law. That is what the law says. And that's what we're going to be talking about right now. Section 230C was designed to address court decisions from the early days of the internet, holding that an online platform that engaged in any editing or restriction of content posted by others thereby became itself a publisher of the content and could be liable for torts like defamation. As the title of Section 230C makes clear, the provision is intended to provide liability protection to a provider of an interactive computer service, such as an online platform like Twitter, that engages in good Samaritan blocking of content when the provider deems the content, in the terms of Section 230C2A, obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. Subsection 230C1 broadly states that no provider of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of content provided by another person. But subsection 230C2 qualifies that principle when the provider edits the content provided by others. No, it doesn't. So here we start to disagree with the White House counsel and what the president is doing. And I'm going to tell you right now, as we continue on through this executive order, I think the thesis here, the philosophy here is fundamentally flawed. We're going to talk about what they seek to achieve with this particular revision to Section 230, but how it doesn't work with what the statute actually says and how, you know, if I were working there, and I probably wouldn't be working there, to be honest with you, I would have done something different that better met the actual contours of the law. So if we actually look at this, these sections are completely independent. Section one says Twitter won't be treated as the publisher of something that another person writes, period. Section two says they won't be liable for restricting access to or availability of material that it finds objectionable, as long as that was taken in good faith. It wasn't lying about it. It didn't have some other reason for doing it. And understand that otherwise objectionable is a very broad bit of legal language. Twitter, Jack Dorsey, whomever can find all Republican thought objectionable. And this statute doesn't clarify that that's a problem. It isn't a problem under the law. 
If Jack thinks that all Republicans are evil, he can strike everything Republican from the platform. And right now, the law as written says that's okay. Now, maybe that shouldn't be okay. Maybe that's a problem with how CDA 230 is written, but that's what it says. And you can't just kind of hand wave around it with an executive order. So when the president says that section two qualifies section one, it's flat out wrong. And maybe that gets changed in the non-draft version of this document, but I wouldn't suspect so because it's the premise on which this section relies. Continuing on, subparagraph C2 specifically addresses protections from civil liability and clarifies that a provider is protected from liability when it acts in a lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable way, when it acts to remove or restrict access to that specific content. The provision does not extend to deceptive or pretextual actions restricting online content or actions inconsistent with an online platform's terms of service. So, yes, it does, right? The provision does not extend to deceptive or pretextual actions. That's probably accurate. That's what good faith is doing there. They're relying heavily on this orange section that says it has to be taken in good faith. So if they are acting deceptively, if it's not good faith, or if they're acting pretextually, that, oh, this looks like it could be good faith, but it's actually for a different reason, then maybe they have a point. But in terms of not operating within their terms of service that they themselves set up, that's not anything. And so we start to get into the problem here. When an interactive computer service provider removes or restricts access to content and its actions do not meet the criteria of subparagraph C2A, it is engaged in editorial conduct. By making itself an editor of content outside the protections of subparagraph C2A, such a provider forfeits any protection from being deemed a publisher or speaker under subsection 230C1, which properly applies only to a provider that merely provides a platform for content supplied by others. No, that's not right. Twitter doesn't stop being Twitter just because it editorializes in places. If we go and we look at the definition here for an interactive computer service, the term interactive computer service means any information system that provides or enables computer access by multiple users to a computer server, including specifically a service or system that provides access to the internet and such systems operated or services offered by libraries or educational institutions. Like I said, this is an old law. So you're not going to get something that's directly on point to Twitter, but just because they might be liable for act one or act two or act 20 or a hundred doesn't mean that they suddenly become a non-provider of an interactive computer service. Twitter is still providing an interactive computer service. I can still tweet out a thread like I did last night, regardless of whether or not they editorialized on the president's tweet. So even if you say, you know what? Jack Dorsey called me up, said, I didn't do that in good faith. It was just to nurk you, Mr. President. And I could say, okay, then you should be civilly liable for that action. Maybe, but it doesn't automatically transform you into a publisher of everything that appears on your platform. This is the exact kind of conspiratorial theorizing that you see elsewhere on the internet. It's not within the statute itself, and it can't be done by executive order. By making itself an editor of content outside the protections of subparagraph C2A, such a provider forfeits any protection. It is the policy of the United States that all departments and agencies should apply section 230C according to the interpretation set out in this section, which, as I said, is entirely divorced from the language that actually appears here. Now, what I said in my thread, 
right? What I said was the best possibility was to make clear that when the provider of an interactive computer service like Twitter adds an editorial link, they will be deemed to be the content provider of the specific language that they linked to. That still all falls within the definitions here because all this says is you won't be a publisher for information provided by another. And so you could say, hey, yeah, you put in an editorial link and you highlighted these specific tweets, you're responsible for everything that is said there and you could marginally increase the liability for the Twitters and Facebooks of the world, right or wrong. But what they tried to do instead is say that this paragraph two qualifies this paragraph one in a way that they are not linked and that if you violate this paragraph, you lose the protection of this paragraph. And that just isn't the way the statute is written. So you're going to have some agency problems with enforcing this executive order as it stands. Maybe some resignations. I don't know. If I were being asked to enforce this interpretation, I would have some issues myself. And if I am some kind of officer of the United States, probably I've given an oath of some kind to abide by the law and the Constitution. So that would be an issue for me personally. To further advance the policy described in that section, within 30 days of the date of this order, the Secretary of Commerce through the National Telecommunications and Information Administration shall file a petition for rulemaking with the FCC requesting that the FCC expeditiously propose regulations to clarify the conditions under which an action restricting access to or availability of material is not taken in good faith within the meaning of that subparagraph, particularly the conditions under which such actions will be considered to be deceptive, pretextual, or inconsistent with the provider's terms of service, or the result of inadequate notice, the product of unreasoned explanation, or having been undertaken without a meaningful opportunity to be heard. That baked into the notion of good faith, the executive branch, the president, would have them be required to give you a good explanation of what they did and some kind of version of due process, a meaningful opportunity to be heard, as well as any other proposed regulations that the NTIA concludes may be appropriate. Right. Okay. Now, it's also worth noting, and you probably have caught on to it if you've been reading this section along with me, that this relates to blocking. All of this second paragraph relates to blocking, restricting access to or availability of material. We are talking about blocking access. And it's very interesting to me that while this is premised around what happened to the president, his tweets weren't blocked. They were editorialized. They were added to. They were commented upon. And yes, I do think maybe Twitter is walking a line that it shouldn't necessarily be doing if I'm looking at it solely from a business perspective. Is this wise of them? I can't speak to that. I think that it might be a little bit risky for exactly these reasons and others, but they didn't block the content. They added to it. And so when you look at a section like this, when you look at what this draft actually says, when we're talking about good faith, it requires restricting access to or availability of material. And that isn't happening here. The White House, even if they wanted to protect the president on these things, even if they wanted Twitter to have to think twice about what they did to President Trump failed to do so. There's nothing in here that talks about actions taken that don't restrict access, that don't block. They aimed at the wrong section. And I don't mean to criticize people with a lot of experience and a lot of lawyers in the White House and what have you, but they aimed at the wrong section and it's not going to do what they think it's going to do. Now, there are other things that they added here that I didn't anticipate 
that you can never anticipate from any White House, but especially this one, and they do have potential teeth to them. Section three is a prohibition on spending federal taxpayer dollars on advertising with online platforms that violate free speech principles. The head of each executive department and agency shall review its agency's federal spending on advertising and marketing paid to online platforms. Such reviews shall include the amount of money spent, the online platform supported, the viewpoint-based speech restrictions imposed by each online platform, an assessment of whether the online platform is appropriate for such agency speech, and the statutory authorities available to restrict advertising dollars. And within 30 days of the date of this order, the head of each agency will report its findings to the director of the Office of Management and Budget. So the federal government and its agencies advertise on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube or wherever. And so this order says, presumably based on the Section 2 requirements of good faith and deceptive advertising and things along those lines, that you will examine whether you really need to advertise on Twitter or Facebook or Google. And you will explain to us why you do in a report. And a number of those agencies are probably likely to say that they don't. And so this is designed to attack Twitter and Facebook and YouTube's bottom line from government spending. Then we get into the things that are really interesting. Federal review of unfair or deceptive practices. It is the policy of the United States that large social media platforms such as Twitter and Facebook, as the functional equivalent of a traditional public forum, should not infringe on protected speech. The Supreme Court has described that social media sites as the modern public square can provide perhaps the most powerful mechanisms available to a private citizen to make his or her voice heard, Packingham versus North Carolina. Now, I was curious about this. I didn't remember that particular case specifically. It's from 2017. This case is actually about a North Carolina law that was making it a felony for a registered sex offender to access a commercial social networking website where the sex offender knows that the site permits minor children to become members or to create or maintain personal web pages, which includes most of the internet. And the Supreme Court overturned that law, saying that it violated the First Amendment principles, that it wasn't narrowly tailored enough to whatever objective they were trying to achieve. And they held that it was a fundamental First Amendment principle that all persons have access to places where they can speak and listen, and then after reflection, speak and listen once more. But it's very specific, right? The Supreme Court in this particular case is overturning state action to limit freedom of speech, not private action, which of course doesn't have the same kind of constraints placed upon it by the First Amendment. The First Amendment aimed to be at Congress and then aimed by virtue of the 14th Amendment at the various states' legislatures and their executives to also prohibit limitations on speech. So this says this is a prohibition on speech that the state isn't allowed to enact. What's really interesting about that to me is that you had something that you could have pulled off the shelf relatively easy that was directly on point, right? This president had a court decide that he couldn't block his critics on Twitter. And that's still kind of ongoing. And maybe they didn't want to use this because they might be uh, appealing this. They might go to the Supreme Court on this particular question. But you had this bit of language actually in the denial of appeal here, excluding people from an otherwise public forum such as this by blocking those who express views critical of a public official is, we concluded, unconstitutional viewpoint discrimination. Now, this is aimed directly at the president and him acting as a kind of state actor. But the actual language, the philosophy here is exactly what you needed back here if you're writing this executive order. So it's funny to me that you just avoided using a case that was directly on point, presumably because it affects this president specifically. Communication through these channels has become important for meaningful participation in American democracy, including to petition elected leaders. 
These sites are providing a public forum to the public for others to engage in free expression and debate. In May of 2019, the White House Office of Digital Strategy created a tech bias reporting tool to allow Americans to report incidents of online censorship. In just weeks, the White House received over 16,000 complaints of online platforms censoring or otherwise taking action against users based on their political viewpoints. The White House Office of, Digi of Digital Strategies shall reestablish the White House tech bias reporting tool to collect complaints of online censorship and other potentially unfair or deceptive acts. Put a pin in that. Keep that language in mind. By online platforms and shall submit complaints received to the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. The FTC shall consider taking action as appropriate and consistent with applicable law to prohibit unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce pursuant to 15 U.S.C. 45, which we look at and says unfair methods of competition in or affecting commerce and unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce are hereby declared unlawful. This is your false advertising statute. This is the same bit of law that says if you're an influencer, you have to disclose that you were paid to make this video on YouTube. And no, folks that come into my comments, I'm still not paid by any of the people that I cover in virtual legality. So they want to apply this to Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. Now, how do they want to do that? For large internet platforms that are vast arenas for public debate, including the social media platform Twitter, the FTC shall also consider whether complaints allege violations of law that implicate the policies set forth in Section 4A of this order. The FTC shall develop a report describing such complaints and make the report publicly available, consistent with applicable law. Such unfair or deceptive acts or practices shall include practices by entities regulated by Section 230 that restrict speech in ways that do not align with those entities' public representations about those practices. They don't align with the public representations about those practices. So what this section is actually saying is that when Twitter goes out with something like this, general guidelines and policies, defending and respecting the rights of people using our service, defending and respecting the user's voice is one of our core values at Twitter. This value is a two-part commitment to freedom of expression and privacy. Transparency is also an important part of this commitment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That when they go out with something like that, when YouTube goes out with something like how important the freedom of speech is to them as a company, or when Facebook does it, that they want to say, if you aren't meeting these requirements that we have set forth, including just violating your own terms of service, that maybe that's a deceptive practice. Maybe that's false advertising. When YouTube says we are a First Amendment platform, and then they're not, maybe that's false advertising. Maybe the FTC can do something about it. And that's not necessarily civil liability. That's not necessarily something that Section 230 directly attaches to, although there would certainly be fights about it. If you go and you look at just unfair methods of competition and you use that as your baseline, you're trying to make an actual federal case out of lying about how free your speech is on your platform. And that might be something that would actually work. It would certainly be something that at Facebook or Twitter, if you're their in-house counsel and you see this come across your desk, you have to think twice about. You have to look at it and say, well, you know, that might be a potential issue. Maybe you fight it 
to the mattresses. Maybe you go all the way and say, this is ridiculous. And this is certainly a novel approach to a question like this. And then we see in section five, it's doubled up on. The attorney general of the United States shall establish a working group regarding the potential enforcement of state statutes that prohibit online platforms from engaging in unfair and deceptive acts and practices. So we just looked at the federal statute, but the states have their own versions of these statutes. And the working group shall invite state attorneys general for discussion and consultation as appropriate and consistent with applicable law. The White House Office of Digital Strategy shall submit all complaints described in Section 4B of this order to that working group. And the working group shall also collect publicly available information regarding the following. Monitoring or creating watch lists of users based on their interactions with content or users, likes, follows, time spent, and monitoring users based on their activity off the platform. Now, this is a bit of confusing language, but what I think they are aimed at here is that this working group will be looking to see if there are reports publicly available of Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or wherever you find yourself monitoring or creating watch lists of their users based on what they do likes, follows, time spent, and or monitoring their users and potentially punishing them for things they do outside of their platform. Again, this dovetails with what they are aimed at as outside of the terms of service, outside of what might be considered a due process kind of consideration. But ultimately, that's what this executive order as drafted says. And so I do think the FTC stuff, the unfair practices kind of question, that's interesting. That's open. That is probably something that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube are going to have to take seriously. When we get to section 230, this is wrong. This isn't the way this works. This was done incorrectly. If the executive actually orders the agencies to follow this kind of rubric, you've got a problem because the law kind of expressly says that's not what happens here. And so it would be interesting to see exactly how the various agencies of the executive branch would treat that. And more importantly, it's worth noting that nothing here actually talks about editorial content at all, right? Twitter could and probably should be more specific about having the right to edit and to add these edited links into every section where they think it might be applicable so that you at least had some kind of warning as a user that they could do that. And so this may include maybe doesn't give enough notice. Maybe that would be a good idea just as kind of a de minimis protection for Twitter to do. But outside of that, The main kind of teeth of this thing aimed at Section 230, in my opinion, doesn't work. And maybe when we get the final version of this, it will be revised to be something that works a little bit better. But if this goes through as essentially written right now, and I think it probably will with minor changes to commas and language, then I don't think what they have proposed to do with the Section 230 protection actually works within the statutory language. And it is the kind of thing that would have a lawsuit be put forth almost immediately and probably go to court and probably get struck down, this section specifically. Now that's all guesswork. That's all speculative. It's very interesting to see that this is what the executive branch and the president would like to put forth with respect to these items as a person that generally believes that these platforms are private and should have the right to do what they want and that users should have the right to say, that is ridiculous, Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, and I'm getting off this platform. I don't really like this kind of approach to these kinds of things, uh, but I do understand that Twitter probably should have some liability for doing the things that it does in this editorializing. And that doesn't mean when I say some liability, it's a possibility for liability right? Twitter right now isn't responsible for this tweet made by The Hill. But by highlighting it in what they editorialized, if 
we looked at this tweet or if we looked at the linked article and found something defamatory, I think Twitter might need to be responsible for that, that they highlighted it, they grabbed it, they gave it popularity, and they did it specifically to prove the president as a liar or wrong in whatever that they he was asserting. I think Twitter probably doesn't deserve a liability shield for this particular activity. But without that defamation, without a separate cause of action, there is nothing for Twitter to be liable about here. And this statement here that they made, almost certainly not defamatory. They couched it as you would expect from reporters. These claims are unsubstantiated according to these other groups that we are just putting up here without further comment. Uh, And so they're trying to avoid liability attaching to them in that way. But I do think 230 is going to have to be looked at with respect to editorializing. I do think it's deserving of some amount of reform, but this executive order is not the way I would do it. And frankly, I don't think it entirely works. I hope you found this educational. I hope you found this useful. This has been virtual legality for today. As I said, when this executive order actually gets finalized, I will take a look at it, see if it is substantively different at all from what I described in this video. And I will pin a comment to this video that describes any changes, any modifications that I think deserve extra conversation. Otherwise, if you like this, please like, please subscribe. We are talking about these kinds of things, not specifically executive orders about the entirety of the internet, all the time, business and law through the lens of pop culture, media, video games, movies, television. And we love to have these conversations with everyone. So please tell people that we are here, like, share, subscribe, do all that good stuff. If you watch it on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.